Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. My name is Dr Johnny Bargett and I'm a TMC member and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Zoe Fritz who's an acute internal medicine consultant in Cambridge. Hi, I am a consultant in acute medicine and I'm also an ethicist so I'm a welcome fellow in society and ethics here at the University of Cambridge. It's fabulous that we can chat to you today about what I hope is, certainly I'm aware, is one of the most important things that we could talk about. And we haven't talked about it thus far in the podcast series. And really what we're talking about is the respect form, treatment escalation planning, anticipatory care planning. Can you tell the listeners a little about what your experience of these things are during your career? And then we'll lead into the rest of the show. I might give a bit of context because luckily DNA CPRs are becoming a thing of the past. So DNA CPRs are a form that document a recommendation not to attempt CPR. You all know that already. But what you might not realize, although some of you might have thought it, is that they can have unintended effects. So putting a red form on the front of someone's note saying don't do something can unintentionally influence both nurses and doctors to not doing other things that might be in that patient's benefit. So there's a whole lot of research to suggest that if you have a DNA CPR, you're less likely, for example, to get simple things like if you have heart failure and you have a DNA CPR, you're less likely to be started on an ACE inhibitor, less likely to be anticoagulated if you have AF, less likely even to get an echo than if you don't have a DNA CPR when you're matched with all kinds of comorbidities. And obviously a DNA CPR shouldn't mean you don't get those simple treatments. It shouldn't even mean you don't get considered for ICU. You have to separate out whether someone would benefit from attempted resuscitation and whether someone would benefit from organ support. So this idea that instead we needed to kind of flip it and talk about what treatments should be given, what are the overall goals of care that we're trying to get to is where certainly where I was coming from and thinking about respect and before that another kind of treatment escalation suggestion. I think you asked what's the role of these anticipatory care plans and in my view they're very much to ensure that you the clinician establishes a shared understanding with the patient about what the patient values, what the current situation is for the patient and then what clinical recommendations will get the patient to the goals that they value. So it's a positive discussion about where are we at? What do we want to achieve? How are we going to achieve it? Instead of let's not do something. Sounds like it's a patient-centered communication at its core. Is that fair to say? It is absolutely patient-centered communication at its core. And I'm not even sure we as clinicians realized how paternalistic DNA CPRs were because they were so embedded. But it was writing a form, often without the patient's consent, saying don't do something because we, the clinician, don't think you will benefit from it without stopping to ask what the patient benefits from. And actually on the other side, we were doing CPR and taking patients to intensive care, assuming that that was what the patient wanted, without stopping to ask if you got really sick, would you want to go to intensive care? And we're obviously internal physicians or acute medics, but this applies across the board. So this applies to patients going in for say vascular surgery. 
So they will be consented for their aneurysm repair, but it is rare for the surgeon and the anesthetist, it's changing now, I'm trying to make it change, but rare for the surgeon and the anesthetist to stop and say to the patient, look, if this surgery doesn't very well, what do you think about a long period on intensive care? What are the outcomes you really wouldn't want if we got to that situation? So that then when the patient's lacking capacity post-surgery, you have some documentation of what that patient would have wanted and you can act in good conscience yourself and in good conscience with their family to either continue treatments or stop them in accordance with what that patient anticipated they might want. Yeah, very much anticipatory care planning at its basic level. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess we're both acute medics and we're used to anticipating what could happen when a patient comes into the hospital. I guess one of the things that the listeners might be wondering is when is the best time to start these conversations? Should we be having discussions about what or how much treatment we think and what the patient would want at the front door? Or is that, you know, in the busy environment that a medical unit possesses, is there a place that's more suitable? What's your experience of this? And what would you recommend for junior colleagues who are learning about this fine art of communication? So I think there's what's ideal and what's practical, and they don't always match up, as we unfortunately all know. So I think the ideal might only be 10, 15 years away. And I think the ideal is that patients have thought about this long before they come in hospital. That respect, there was this great person in Leicester who said, expect respect, that respect is just something that patients expect to be asked about in the same way they get asked about their drug history, what medications they're on, that they will have previously maybe even thought about this, had this conversation with their families, had a conversation with a GP. If they have a chronic illness, ideally had a conversation with, say, a specialist nurse. So, for example, someone with motor neuron disease, COPD or heart failure will know their specialist nurse really well. The specialist nurse will understand their disease progression and they could have a respect conversation in clinic with them that would then just need to be revisited and revised at the point they came into hospital. So I would say the respect process isn't something that happens once. It's not a static one-off done and dusted. It's something that needs to be continually revised and checked in with the patient that the patient's condition hasn't changed, that they don't feel the same. You don't need to go over the whole conversation every time, but you do need to say, oh, I see you've had a respect conversation. You know, are you feeling comfortable with the decisions, recommendations you made last time? So to answer your question, I think it should happen early. I think in practice right now, obviously, we're not dealing with a whole population that has had respect conversations. And I have a respect conversation on my post-take round with literally every patient. So if you were to come in, it wouldn't be a full respect conversation. I would be saying, nice to meet you, go through everything. And I'd say in hospital, there are all kinds of treatments we can offer. I assume you would want to be considered for all of them, including CPR, should you need it? And you would say, yes, of course. Why are you even asking me that? And I would say, I literally check with everybody. Occasionally, that pulls up someone that goes, oh, no, I've actually had a conversation. I've seen such and such, and I would never want to go to intensive care. Or someone saying, I don't want a blood transfusion that isn't obviously in the notes or various other things. So having it as a standard question, we assume you would want to be all for all treatments, just checking, allows patients to express their wishes not to have certain treatments. And if that's the case, then you can explore a bit deeper and say, why is it? You know, If it doesn't fit with your clinical expectation, you can make sure they really understand what potential that treatment has. But I have that light conversation with everybody. And with anyone who has more complex comorbidities or is frail, I have a full respect conversation on the post-take round. One of the things that people will be listening to and thinking, how do you have the time for that? And I guess that's one of the things that we could discuss. How do you decide when and how much time and how to approach that in those ones that you knew it might take some time? Like as a you know, significant amount of care and due diligence yeah. about how you go about that conversation. So I don't know whether I do do it too quickly. You would have to ask the patients that I have it with. But I think doctors are more scared of these conversations than patients are on the whole. And if you have had a conversation about, as you should have done by this point anyway, the patient's diagnosis and their plans. So let's imagine this person's come in with some heart failure 
and you've put them on some frizamide and perhaps they've got a coexisting infection. You've given them some antibiotics and you've explained all that. Then you say, okay, so obviously, as we've said, we're going to do everything we can to get you better in hospital, giving you frizamide, giving you antibiotics. There are all kinds of treatments we can offer. And in order for me to make sure we're giving you ones that you would benefit from, I always stop at this point and ask patients if there are any health outcomes that they value and any health outcomes that they fear. And quite often they have no idea what you're saying and they go, what do you mean? And then you say, well, some treatments can result in patients, you know, for example, if you take someone to intensive care and you put them on a ventilator, if your lungs were to get much worse, they can end up in quite a dependent state. And some people say, I wouldn't want to be in a dependent state. And other people say, I wouldn't want CPR. So you offer the language of things that other people have said to you. And you say, and other people say, actually, I'm very happy with my quality of life. So long as you can keep me going at this rate, throw everything at me. The risk of doing that, obviously, is you're giving people options that they might then just echo back what you've said. But in general, that allows people to go, oh, I know what you mean. This is something I wouldn't want. Or they might say, I need more time to think about it. And that's fine, because as I say, it's a conversation you might have to come back to. So I start it with everyone on the post-it round. And if someone says, or is looking hesitant, I say, you know, do you want one of us to come back and talk later? And we can give them some information on respect and then come back. But I think it's critical to have those conversations then, at the moment of meeting someone, And I think it's critical for a few reasons. One, to just make it routine and get rid of the stigma. And two, because if you don't have it then, then the only other time you're going to have it is that they get really sick and you suddenly need to have it. And that's not a good time to have that conversation. Or the third thing is you don't have it at all. The patient loses capacity and then you're having to have a conversation with their relatives and asking them what they thought that person would want. So I am a strong advocate for making this absolutely routine on admission but in an ideal world earlier. So I think everyone should be having them in care homes. I think all patients with chronic illnesses should be having them with their specialist. And I hope in the future, all kinds of people bring it to their GPs. I think it's clear that you've got a lot of experience in this, Dr. Fritz. And you know, a lot of the work that you've done in your career is part of this. I'm keen to discuss the tools that we can give trainees to approach this, because it, it's something that I guess you learn through observation. You learn how to approach these through training in medical school or teaching in the training programs that you are, but you might get a rare chance to observe a senior trainee or a consultant give this conversation. But it's not the kind of conversations that you often see, you know, learning from your peers in experiential learning kind of process. Are there any tools such as the RedMap framework that exist? Is that something that you're familiar with? And if so, can we talk about that? So I really like the Red Map framework. I'm not that, like when I say I'm familiar with it, I know the acronym. And I think I probably do use it. I think it's a really helpful thing. I think it dovetails with respect and with other kinds of anticipatory care planning. So for anyone who doesn't know it, it's ready. Can we talk about your health and care? Expect, what do you know or want to tell or ask me? Diagnosis matters, what is important to you and your family? Actions, what we can do, what won't help and plan. And that fits exactly onto the respect. So starting off, I think a good conversation is to start off establishing a shared understanding of the patient's diagnosis and their setup. And that's because if there's a misunderstanding, and that I guess is the E and D of RedMap. And that is because if the patient, even if they know that they've got heart failure, but they don't understand that they're never going to get better from the heart failure, or they don't understand that they're likely to die, say, in six months if they've had several admissions of their heart failure, then it's impossible to go ahead and have that conversation about CPR because you're talking from a point of completely different expectations. You need to make sure they understand their diagnosis and their prognosis. And the other way around, as a doctor, we need to make sure we're not making assumptions about their quality of life. So I had a patient with MS that I always talk about It just really took me by surprise because they looked frail and they were bed bound and they had been for a long time. And when I asked them about their quality of life at this point, I said, you've got MS, you're bed bound. They said, yes, but I'm very happy. 
I'm a classical musician. I can still really enjoy music. And so long as I'm listening, I don't need anything else. And that was a really like important moment to say, you have to have a shared understanding of what that patient's diagnosis means to them, as well as what that patient's diagnosis means to you. So one is shared understanding of the patient's diagnosis and prognosis. And then two is this thing that I mentioned to you already about. So in red map, MAT is what's important to you and your family. For me, I talk about this in order for me to understand what treatments you would benefit from. I need to know what health outcomes you value and you fear. And by asking that question, it then isn't a doctor telling a patient that they can't have certain treatments. It's listening to them in order to understand how certain treatments would or would not benefit them. And so your final bit of clinical recommendations is entirely based on the patient and the conversation you've had so far. It just makes it a much more comfortable, much happier conversation. So then you say, in light of what you've just told me, I would recommend we do X, Y, and Z, but I don't think we should attempt X or Y, or maybe you say I would attempt everything, but let's just for the sake of this scenario say, but I don't think we should attempt X or Y because I don't think that has a good chance of getting you to the place that you've told me you want to be. And also as I say, stopping if someone says something that's totally unachievable and then saying, okay, we need to revisit this. Don't plow ahead. That's really helpful just to get an insight into how you approach it. When we talk about, you were very clear about CPR as a treatment, but a shared understanding about that treatment. And then a very separate discussion about whether you'd be for escalation to intensive care unit or the critical care environment. And I guess just to sort of talk about two cases, if that's okay, Zoe. One gentleman who I saw many years ago, who was in his 90s, but got out of the house every day went to the shops, walked for miles, remarkably fit 90-year-old man who presents with symptoms and good history for an acute pulmonary embolism. Yeah. But noted to have potentially a syncopal episode and cardiovascularly stable on the ward when you're seeing him in the medical assessment unit, but for whatever reason, hasn't been able to have CTPA and is awaiting treatment. So it's had treatment dose the pan. Mm-hmm. And I guess approaching that patient, the things you'd be thinking were, well, he hasn't had a CTPA yet, but how far would we want to treat this gentleman? How far do you think we should discuss this with him about what could happen? If he had a sudden hypotensive episode, would he become shocked? Would this gentleman benefit from thrombolysis or even CPR? What are your thoughts on that, given his physiological robustness well, I would go into this conversation assuming that he would benefit from all those treatments. You, know, you said he's, he's physically quite a well nine-two-year-old. No, no past medical history of, yeah. of, of no. So I would go in assuming, and I, I would start the conversation, I think, by saying, sounds like you might have had a clot on your lung, and this might have been the thing that made you feel faint. And luckily, a clot on the lung is very treatable. So give you some blood thinning drugs, which we've already given you, but we haven't actually proven that this is what you have right now. And that's why we're planning to do the CTPA, which someone's probably already spoken to you about. In the meantime, I just wanted to check with you whether you would be happy for us to give you all treatments that we think you might benefit from. And that might include, in your case, for example, giving you further blood thinning drugs. It might include, if you had a big clot in the lung and it put pressure on your heart, actually having to try to restart your heart. And it might include a short period of intensive care. But I need to know from you if there's anything you wouldn't want us to do and if there are any health outcomes you wouldn't want. So, for example, if we weren't successful in doing those interventions and you were on intensive care for a while, if there was a point where you would say, please don't do this anymore. So I think that's how I'd start the conversation. Did that ring true to you? Yeah, I think that's generally the way that we approach this. And thankfully, 
his journey was smooth and he had a high intermediate risk PE, but he never had any deterioration. So that's great. I did. I will tell you, though, I did have a patient, a very similar patient in her 90s who had a PE and who had had a CTPA in A&E. And I didn't do the thing that I've just told you guys I do all the time in terms of checking everything. I was a bit cock-a-hoop because we were within the four-hour target. We'd already diagnosed this woman with a PE. We were able to get her home, no heart strain, from A&E with her anticoagulation so I didn't really think I had to have all these conversations about CPR and stuff. And I went up to her and said, oh, hello, you know, you've seen X doctor and the good news is we've got a diagnosis, you've got a clot on your lung, which is very treatable. So we can start you on some anticoagulation and you can actually go home. And she leaned forward and said, tell me, darling, what is one allowed to die from these days? So I hadn't asked her. I hadn't said, do you want treatment for this? Because I had thought it was so obvious. It was quite a good example of really, you probably should check with people. That's a little aside. Yeah, and I think it's fair. You know, some people will say, well, actually, I've had a good life and it's a rare insight into someone's health. Exactly. And a lot of people, when I say, what outcomes do you fear? They say, I don't want a lingering death. When my time comes, let me go. That has been such a common phrase that I've heard from people. That's really insightful. So sort of flipping it on the other extreme of age and physiology. So my mind's drawn to someone who I saw again many years ago, who was in his late 20s and unfortunately had liver cirrhosis with no formal presentation to the hospital until he presented with ascites. When you saw him, he was complaining of abdominal pain and he had had this grumbling abdominal pain for the last seven, ten days, just felt really lethargic. And turns out when you were listening to how he had been living over the last few years, he really hadn't been leaving the house at all. Rarely left his room, had no formal past medical history because he never really went to the doctor. And on assessment, he looks encephalopathic, but still they will have a conversation with you. And he's got ascites and he's jaundiced and he's got lots of bruising and he's in pain. And the key things are you're thinking, and he looks a bit septic as well. I'm worried about spontaneous bacterial peritonitis potentially mm-hmm. infected ascites, and he's a wee bit hypotensive as well. Is it liver cirrhosis? Did you, what do you say is liver failure is from? Alcohol. It is all from alcohol, okay. <clears throat> and still drinking? Still drinking. How would you approach this? Because this is you know, a very different scenario in that he's much younger, he potentially could be developing multi-organ failure in the next days, but hasn't formally presented to the hospital before. How would you approach your assessment of this chap in the post-state ward round? So obviously this is miserable. I think, can we change the hypothetical a little bit where there's so many uncertainties for me to know exactly, but if we imagine that this man who is still drinking and is all alcohol-rated liver failure has at some point seen someone who said he can't have a liver transplant, is that? He hasn't. He hasn't. In which case, so this is someone who hasn't attended services before, hasn't attempted to stop, hasn't had support from drug and alcohol to stop. Yeah. So I guess if what had happened was this was a man who had previously attempted to stop drinking on many occasions, hadn't been able to and had been refused a liver transplant, then at this point that he came in, you would obviously do everything to treat immediately reversible causes in terms of his sepsis. And although he's encephalopathic, you would be assessing whether he had any capacity to tell us what he wanted. But if he had enough capacity to have those conversations, you would be saying, look, unfortunately, this isn't curable at this point. And so this is on the shared understanding that, you know, your liver failure has deteriorated to such a point that there isn't a cure for it. We can treat the infection if there is an infection, 
but we can't treat the damage to your liver. And so we now need to go towards doing what we can to make you comfortable and enjoying your last weeks of life. And how can we do that? So you would shift the conversation to what can we do to make sure you're comfortable? Mm. That was in a scenario where he had already been assessed and had already been told that he wasn't eligible for a liver transplant. In your man, where he hadn't, I think I would want to make sure that that was the case first. So I would be speaking to the hepatologist and liver surgeons and saying, I have an acutely sick patient. I need this to be a multidisciplinary decision about what is and isn't possible for this man. And I probably wouldn't go to have the conversation with the patient until I knew what was or wasn't possible, because I wouldn't want to offer him false hope if I was told this wasn't a possibility. Yeah. So I think the key things that we really learned from this patient is that his main concern above all else was his pain. And that's what we focused on whilst treating him for SPP. And the gastroenterology team then took over the gentleman's care. And I guess the key things that struck me were, and we know this, that age doesn't preclude good physiology. And that's something that I guess, or when we're having these discussions with our colleagues about treatment and the respect form that we've been talking about, that's something that we need to bear in mind. And I guess it's just, it's complex. And I guess having discussions with our team. So how do you utilize your team in these situations? Is there anybody that you, you would recommend the team to approach or anything else from your experience? So in this particular scenario, I mean, obviously we talked to the hepatologists and the palliative care team. We also have a very good drug and alcohol team, the Cambridge amazing drug and alcohol dependency team, who can really help in terms of the withdrawal that this man also might feel. And I guess there is a care that is needed, especially for people who have led a life that isn't perhaps exactly the same as lots of other patients we've seen to work out How can we best, if he does end up being someone that we have to give palliative care to, manage his pain, but what else is important to him? You know, is it going to be being able to be outside? Is it even possible to get him home or is it going to be too chaotic an environment for us to support him there? So I think really bringing in not only palliative care and hepatology, but thinking about the drug and alcohol part of this and not ignoring that, not just saying, well, that's what caused this, but actually that's a continued part of his life. I think that would be another important element here. That's really, really helpful. You know, I think there are so many different services and support networks that we can offer patients. We've talked about so much. We could talk about so much more. But the key things that I'd like to just sort of end on now are your final thoughts on just those take-home points and messages that the trainee coming through internal medicine can take from this and use in their next discussion that they have. Sure. So thank you for the opportunity. I will choose my words carefully because this is a precious opportunity. I do think that doctors shouldn't be scared to have these conversations and you'll be surprised how much patients are willing to think about the future when given the opportunity. They might not initiate the conversation, but once you've opened it in a sensitive way, in general, they're very happy to talk about the future. Obviously, there are exceptions. I would say that in order to have a comfortable and useful conversation, you need to start with shared understanding of the patient's diagnosis and prognosis. You need to make sure you really listen to what it is, the patient values and fears. And the other thing I didn't talk about was documentation. So write down, ideally in quotes, what the patient has said then, because the patient's views on what they value and fear can guide the clinician in all different kinds of end-up scenarios. You may end up making clinical recommendations that aren't that relevant to what may happen to that patient in the end. But if you've written in quotes what the patient values and fears, that can be applied to all different kinds of clinical scenarios. So that would be another tip. Write down, ideally in quotes, what they write, what they've said. And then make sure that you explain your clinical recommendations to them, not in terms of what you're not going to do, but in terms of what treatments you're giving and how those will help them get to where they want to be and why some treatments wouldn't be of benefit to them. And then I think the next thing would be not to get entrenched. So if 
even having that great conversation, the patient says, but I really want X or Y, then say, okay, and you probably need to loop right back to the beginning and offer a second opinion and say, I understand. And we should need to have this conversation again. And I'm going to get another colleague too, so that you can get the second opinion. So don't be afraid of a second opinion. That I think covers it in detail and more. It's been an absolute pleasure, Zoe, and I really appreciate your time. Um, pleasure. To our listeners, I'd just like to say thank you for listening and please send your feedback to the college. Once again, Dr. Zoe Fritz, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me.